Today is August 30th, 2020. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Naganago Mekoche Chestokom Aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, composed of the Wesley, Chinookee, and Bearspaw Nations, and the Dene from the Sutina Nation. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and the members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot Mokinstis as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellowknife Dene. My father is so Canadian. I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act and Post status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage and that I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare People, the Great Bear Lake People in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Clincho Tine Indahe in Dene, meaning many horse town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical to creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share what I know as I walk down my red road. If you're experiencing emotional distress after he hearing anything we talked about today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll-free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Non-Indigenous, there are distress center lines in your area as well. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for already showing your support to the show. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments or questions. Uh, I now have an iTube or a YouTube channel um, and would love to have you subscribe. For podcasts, I'm on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. I'd like to give a shout out to my super loyal donors, Adam, Alexandria, Beatrice, Ben, Beth, Brian, Kat, Celine, Christina, Crystal, Diana, Jana, Jenny, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, Ken Kathy, Kenna, Leah, Lisi, Marisa, Melissa, Morami, Natalie, Nathan, Rebecca, The Sprawl, Shara, Sharon, Tammy, Tiffany, Vanessa, and Veronica. Whew, that's a good one. So I'm really honored today to have somebody, I actually consider him uh, my close personal friend, one of those folks that have been amazing to me in my journey down the red road. I, I just love Chadwick to pieces. So, Chad, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Bonjour. Chad and Dishnakaz, Manoman Canning and Dunjaba, Montreal Meguadoda, Maingan Dodam. 
Um, for those uh, listening, uh, that was uh, my Anishinaabe language, uh, Anishinaabe Moen. Uh, what I was saying was my name is Chad. I am from the community of Mississaugas of Rice Lake, Canada, and the Indian Act refer to it as Hiawatha First Nation. Um, I am Mississauga, a member nation of the Anishinaabeg. I currently live in the Montreal area in um, Quebec, uh, which is built upon uh, Mohawk territory, unceded Mohawk territory, who are the traditional stewards of the area that I am. And um, I'm coming to you from that territory, but my territory is near what we would call Peterborough, Ontario. Um, I grew up in that area, um, the Dish with the Spoon Treaty area, as well as uh, the Williams Treaty area, as it's referred to, with the blueprint that was used for um, the, well, it was, it was the, final, the final treaty after all the, the number of treaties had uh, been done. Uh, so it was the last official treaty that was signed and just recently finished a, a la massive land claim over that because of the legal background of how it was done. Um, I come from a single mother background. My mother, uh, Beverly Cowie, uh, her, uh, her name Thunderbird Woman, Red Thunderbird Woman. Um, she, um, I, I learned a lot from her and, and my aunt and my, my other, a lot of the other female lineage to my family because they are, were my teachers. So um, and what we're going to be talking today will be kind of pertinent because of coming from, as we call it, a military brat background. My mother served in the Canadian Armed Forces from 1975 to 1992. She was a military police officer helping with the um, uh, security at the Montreal Olympics after what happened in 72 in Munich. She did peacekeeping from, for six months in 86 during the, during the Camp David Accords in, uh, in Israel and Egypt. Um, so she was over there for six months in 1986 doing peacekeeping. She also helped with bringing Viennese refugees, or as it's sometimes referred to, the boat people, not politically correct, but um, that's the term that was, that was used that she, she recalled. She was a part of the Canadian detail that helped bring refugees over after the south part of of uh, Vietnam fell to the north uh, back in 78. Um, she retired in 1992 when uh, cuts were done to the military under the Mulroney government. She got to finish off in the accountancy uh, <laughs> department for the, for the military before she moved back to our home community uh, where she was born and raised and then re-entered into schooling when I got her, her undergrad and then got her teaching degree um, before trying to teach for a bit, but then officially more or less working for the community and doing a lot of work as uh, education for understanding indigenous stuff, um, specifically on Anishinaabe backgrounds and um, working with people, including within the community and outside of our community um, until she passed away two years ago. So a lot of my stuff is gonna come from this. This is why I'm looking forward to talking about a comment from your justice minister out there in Alberta. So, Oh, has something happened recently, Chad? I don't know. Um, I think um, people are talking about erasing history and, and rewriting it or something as if uh, it wasn't already done through some of these figures who are seeing their statues toppled. Um, I don't know how you can erase history in regards to people who were trying to already erase history to begin with, because how can you actually have proper history when these figures were working really hard to erase it, including John A. MacDonald, who was so keen on making sure the, the Indian in the man and woman would be dead. And obviously we're talking about the nice thing that happened in Montreal recently. Um, some think it's negative. I, um, we'll, we'll discuss it. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know what? Let's discuss it. So um, yesterday was a national um, protest to defund the police, and uh, Calgary definitely took part of it. Uh, we actually had some uh, folks from the Black uh, community in Edmonton come down to Ed to Calgary, and you're going to love this. So Global News, their national news, news link, 
um, actually said, took pictures of what happened in Calgary and, and put Edmonton because someone who works there obviously recognized our speakers as from Edmonton. But, you know, obviously I, there's so much proof to document they were here in Calgary. So they, of course, the news media once again got their propaganda wrong when it comes to dealing with racism. Shocking, I know. Um, so I was a part of those um, protests here in Calgary and we uh, took a knee on Center Street, which was right. The Center Street is actually this, the road that has the Calgary Tower. So it, it was pretty dramatic for us to take a knee in two of the major intersections and the last one being right in front of the tower. Ninth Ave is a, is a pretty major intersection. So, um, so this was to defund the uh, police and then we moved over to City Hall and had speeches and had that conversation. So by the time I had gotten home, I was a little exhausted. But what I was not um, prepared for was seeing Montreal, who took down a statue of John A. McDonald, but it didn't just come down. The way it fell, it fell on its head and then flopped over. And the, so the head popped off. And like somebody, by the time I had got home, because you know, you're how many hours ahead of me, uh, by the time I had got home, it was already remixed and <laughs> had a great background to it. So I've just been watching that over and over and over again, and I, I can't get enough of it. <laughs> So that's really what we're referring to. However, because you're out east and I'm here out in the west, obviously the indigenous commentators as well as the political commentators have had their go at this. A lot of, um, you know, I ran for provincial politics here in Alberta and the, um, so I'm, I'm speaking as a loser, just kidding. But I, I, as someone who did not win, I did uh, come across a lot of what the MLAs and what my premier is saying. And uh, there was a lot of political fallout from this conversation. And uh, so let's get started. Tell me, I know you have a few things queued up that you want to discuss. And, and actually, because I was at those protests, I haven't seen them all. So I can't wait. So before I go on, the other thing I forgot to mention, as I would have said in the, the, the podcast we did in June. So I am a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Alberta. So I've done my time in Wild Rose Country, specifically Treaty 6 time. Um, I miss it. Unfortunately, though, I'm not a fan of uh, Jason Kenney. So I know too many people who are trying to flee the province because of being labeled as liberals or progressives or simply because of being LGBT or being minorities. So it's unfortunate to see that. I've, we've, we've had a number of friends leave. I, we, we moved because as you know, my partner, my, my husband got a job um, back here in the, in the East that we had to move back here for after Target left the country. But um, so I'm, I'm a PhD candidate from there and political science. I do Canadian and comparative politics according to the University of Alberta, but I do indigenous politics is more what I do. Canadian indigenous settler, indigenous politics is what I focus on. Um, my master's degree is from the University of Manitoba in political studies. Uh, my MA advisor was Dr. Kira Ladner. Um, so if anyone is looking at wanting to understand more in regards to Canadian indigenous political relations, um, Kira Ladner is someone to read. She's one of the select few who has been in the department uh, or in the field of political science who, who does a lot of stuff to do with constitutionalism and just re or deconstructing some of the existence that uh, we seem to be learning or that how we learn and what we're missing in regards to learning. Um, Joyce Green would be another one. Um, Glenn Coltard. Um, Hayden King. There are tons of Indigenous scholars that are coming out and that are on the cusp of coming out uh, as, as full uh, doctors as they would be obviously in academia. It's still weird for me to think that I'll hopefully be called that soon, but um, 
so that's my background with my undergrad at Western University, or formerly known as University of Western Ontario, um, where I did an honors degree in, in political science and a minor in First Nation studies. Um, so for those who might doubt my background, because I know sometimes there's questions about who looks stereotypically Native, remember, because Michelle, weren't you, um, you're, you're, you're blonde, right? You're, you're blonde and light-skinned? Yeah, this uh, week I was uh, recently called uh, platinum blonde and, uh, and light-skinned as a, an example of lateral violence, yeah. Yeah. So um, for those who might question my understanding of my background, so I am Ojibwe, I'm Anishinaabe, specifically Mississauga, and Irish, and, and English. Um, so I have both backgrounds. So as I, used, I usually joke, I could work for Native ceases very well and infiltrate uh, the settler side, because no one would expect anything. Um, but for those who will say that I don't know anything, I have a PhD, I'm on my way to finishing my PhD in political science. I have a master's degree. I've passed my comprehensive exams. I've done my studies. I have my dissertation proposal passed. So I also have the Western academic background in it. Um, and I say that because time after time, my credibility is questioned on this because they think I'm not educated enough or they think I'm not indigenous enough. So and this is usually from non-indigenous side, but sometimes it comes from the indigenous side too. It depends on who and what the topic is. Um, so I want to clarify that first, because <laughs> I think that's important to include. Um, uh, these are book smarts, and some of it is street smarts, as we call it. So what I have is from my growing up, my existence, and I'm also two-spirited. As I said, I have, uh, I'm have i married, and my, my husband, Dan, uh, and I have been together for over a decade. We have maneuvered through that route. I remember going to... Um, the protests back in 2004, 2005, just before same-sex marriage was legalized. Thankfully, we were able to eventually, like at the time, obviously Dan and I weren't together because we didn't know each other, but uh, we obviously had the chance and opportunity because of people favoring equality to be able to have that done in, in November of 2017. And as you know, Michelle, you were there. Um, so I just want to qualify from my background where I'm coming from this. I get labeled as a leftist because of my stances on indigenous rights which is kind of funny um because i look at it through rule of law and i'm usually looking at it as a lens of using western western understandings against uh the perceived uh, stereotypes that exist or the lack of knowledge people seem to have on this so this is where we're gonna have fun just deconstructing some of this stuff um and before we there might be another reason why you're also considered a leftist and when you talked about your street smarts i think maybe you should mention a little bit of your volunteer work that may have connected us so I am a um, recovering liberal. <laughs> no. Well, I'm not a recovering liberal because I'm no longer a liberal. Um, I was very involved with the Liberal Party of Canada from about, I became a Liberal Party member back under when, when Paul Martin was still leader and prime minister um, because of the things that he had promised to do and things that he was moving on. Um, I very much was in favor of Kelowna, the national childcare process that I would have known many people who would have benefited benefit from because obviously they would have been able to have their kids in affordable daycare while they went back and got their schooling, my sister being one of them. Yeah. Um, obviously this has not happened. My sister has still not been able to go back to school. She has taken the time to focus on raising her family, but you know, um, many like, like her have not had a chance to go back and continue the education she wanted to do. Like at one time when she was younger, she wanted to be a marine biologist. She wanted to go into criminology as well at one time, but um, she fortunately has, uh, she is, she's an edu education assistant. She works with, um, with students who, who, who have high, high, high needs, especially with um, autistic students. Um, she, she, she does that. So thankfully she's been able to do that, but that did not come at a hard, very difficult price. But um, this came later in her life as well. Sorry, Rochelle, if you watch this, I'm not meaning to give away your story, but I'm just giving a context. So love you very much. <laughs> Don't hurt me when I see you next time. <laughs> so, um, but um, 
so I got involved because of stuff like that. I saw more of a movement forward on that. Um, I would have said I would have been, you know, reddish orange at the time. Um, I moved more into the Liberal Party as time went on, getting involved with the Western Liberals, serving on the executive there. I eventually was approached to run as the youth rep for the Indigenous wing of the party. And that youth rep position goes between the Young Liberals of Canada and the Indigenous wing. And then from there, I became co-chair for one term, took, the, like, took, took, a, took a term break because I wanted to go, I started my PhD and then I came back for another term. Um, realized quickly that things that were said from 2006 up until 2015 were what I would say smoke and mirrors. It was, you know, a lot of talk. And then once government was formed, it was quickly made very clear that if you know, you didn't fall into line in my personal ex experience, then um, you were, you were an enemy of, <laughs> of certain uh, brass. So um, I left after my term was done in April, 2018, because I couldn't take it anymore. And I was not going to play a broken record player. Um, I'd started teaching by then and was enjoying that because I was finding a lot more avenue doing that. And um, I see importance for people who are politically involved, but I also realized it was time to fall on the knife and pass the torch at the same time. So that way the next group who was taking over would be able to continue it without having all the political baggage I had from standing up for what I believed in. Cause that comes with a price in politics. You stand up for what you believe in. People will come for you with knives, proverbial knives. So um, that's how I got to meet Michelle. For those who are listening, she um, came on as a member of the IPC or the APC Alberta at the time, and then took over as chair of it before um, taking on uh, a role on the national executive as my second term ended and I left the party. So I'm no longer involved. Um, I don't follow any party. I'm an independent. Um, I'm looking at Indigenous voting and whether or not participation actually causes change. Um, but so that's my, my long-term background with that, but I have various other ways of being volunteering on the Indigenous side and within academics and education and student groups uh, from 2005 on. So yeah. Yeah, no, and I think it's important to give that context because um, it's interesting when we talk about street smarts, I mean, ultimately um, all of these positions through the Liberal Party are unpaid and um, they absolutely take all of your free time. So while you're in academia, and that is very exhausting, but so is, you know, taking a chair position or a president's position when it comes to the Liberal Party, and you did both. So I, I would argue that you have the lived experience as well as um, the academic experience when it comes to talking about political issues and specifically on Canadian settler uh, relationships with uh, Indigenous people. So um, I just wanted to give all of that context so that people understand, like, this isn't something that you, uh, oh, well, what's the first thing that gets thrown in our face? Well, why don't you do something about it? So you've tried. It's not like you haven't put effort towards that change. And this, this comes into when we talk about toppling statues, but um, I want to make it clear that this isn't just a Liberal Party of Canada issue because Native people, Indigenous people get used as political chess in a, in a political game like that's the way I would describe it we get thrown around by all parties as a way of attacking the other parties for not doing enough when effectively they've all done wrong they've all not done well um and I say that as someone who's been involved I'm no longer involved but I have seen attacks and stuff like that from the NDP from the conservatives from the liberals the only party I haven't seen that from is the greens because you know they haven't had government yet in any way People will say, well, the NDP haven't had federal government. Well, they've had provincial governments. And a lot of provincial encroachment on Indigenous rights comes because of the NDP as the CCF 
a lot of encroachment in some national policies comes from all of their predecessors before they were called this, the, the NDP. The CCF has some encroachment there. When we talked about the white paper that uh, Trudeau tried to put forth, Trudeau Sr., it had NDP support originally. Uh, and it was also a part of their national policy convention um, plans in the early 60s. They had actually drafted this, as the Liberals have done good with things like national health care and, and other things they kind of borrowed, as we say, from, <laughs> from the NDP. It was the same thing with the white paper. This was a plan from the NDP since uh, the early 60s originally, when they were still the CCF. But you can even go back to when the progressives existed and the denial of uh, the social safety net and, um, and uh, retirement planning for Indigenous people came in because they pushed to not have it in. You can look back at it. Um, so all parties have a history. And there's a reason why I talk about that, because I don't want to look like we're just talking negatively about the Liberals. The Liberals have a lot of work to do. Um, the NDP have a lot of work to do. And the Conservatives have a lot of work to do if they're going to try to do this. And they can't just keep using other leaders as an example. I'm sorry, Nikki Ashton does this with Native people all the time. She uses, them as, uses us as props uh, when she tries to lambast the um the uh the federal liberals while forgetting that her father as a provincial ndp cabinet minister in manitoba did a lot of negative things to indigenous people and um forgetting her own party's history um she forgets that when she was lambasting the trudeau in 2015 that two years before her leader mulclair you know endorsed the working relationship stephen harper had with our nations uh and then again we look at the conservatives and you know stephen harper uh Baker, back and back and back uh did not have good relations. Andrew Scheer was horrible during his time with relations towards Indigenous people. Uh, and, you know, Aaron, Tool, Aaron O'Toole is talking about, you know, taking back Canada. Well, we'll discuss that as well, because there's problems with that understanding. Um, and it's very MAGA, uh, make America great again sounding. But um, then the Liberals obviously have their dark history too. We have a lot of policies that have been implemented between the PCs and the federal liberals or the conservatives and liberals, formerly the PCs. But again, I, I want to state that the NDP have a history there that they need to acknowledge, that they refuse to acknowledge. And anytime I tried to point that out over Twitter to some key NDP MPs, Nikki Ashton as well, uh, it was always, she didn't know what I was talking about. Um, and, um, or they didn't, they didn't understand why it was, you know, that, that wasn't the NDP. Well, no, they, it is. And on top of that, the provincial wings of the NDP have control over the federal wing. That's how their system works. So yeah, they, their constitutions interlink. So like, and that became an issue here in Alberta because while I had supported Rachel Notley compared to the alternative when it came to conservatives, uh, there was no way I could even take out a provincial um, membership anyway. So of course I ran as a liberal, um, but our, our constitutions aren't linked. So what an Alberta liberal does is not inherently part of the policy uh, at the federal level. And I think a lot of people, I mean, I mean, here in Alberta, no one understands, geez, the difference between municipality, provincial or federal politics, let alone the intricacies of, uh, you know, a membership, a party membership. Yeah. And like, so, so it, it's key, it, the key thing here is, especially as you have politicians now uh, playing again over the statue, they're playing political chess with how to deal with this and um, blaming Trudeau and Trudeau senior for stuff. So, there's problems with every prime minister we've had. The only prime minister I would say who until recently might've made a comment that was questionable was Paul Martin. Paul Martin did a lot of good in the three years he was leader. Um, but there's questions over being able to acknowledge, you know, genocide. And if that actually happened, and obviously myself and, and yourself included, we, we argue it did. Yeah. Um, because that's, that's what was done. You 
you literally have policy in quotes talking about killing the Indian and the child. This policy that comes right from, you know, that that you toppled over Johnny McDonald um, and him having this idea for a long time. And part of the reason for that is because you have to dismantle and get rid of what existed before. And this all comes about because when Europeans came here, we weren't talked about in the Bible. Native people, indigenous people of the Americas, the Americas in general, weren't mentioned. So there was confusion about whether or not indigenous people are human. So there was a long battle up until 15, up until the 1530s, up until 1537, I believe. Um, sorry, my notes for that part are in, because I've been writing my dissertation. So I've just got through a whole bunch of historical documentation that I had to write. But uh, there was a palpable that came out that said, you know, indigenous people are human. They're not civilized though. So, you know, they, 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 they have the choice of being conquered or Christianized. If they Christianize, then there's more protections for them. But, you know, the Doctrine of Discovery back in 1493 talked about the ability to go and conquer land that was not Christianized either. So it didn't settle the issue though of whether or not indigenous people were human. So that was done in 1537. So because of that and the, the precedent that, you know, it existed and you have the Marshall case down in, um, I'm sorry, the Mac Macintosh case in the States that even still says that, you know, indigenous title existed back in the 1830s. This case said that because American jurisprudence still comes off of the British jurisprudence. So because of the Royal Proclamation of 1763 that said, you know, certain territories are reserved for indigenous people, First Nations people, and it's not to be molested, you have to actually surrender it in a treaty. The Americans also kept following that because that was what was precedent and that's what American law based off. So you had this case in the 1830s that said Aboriginal title did exist, but it was still kind of extinguished by the Americans by the 1830s. So it existed, but, you know, it didn't exist where they were. So you still had to go through the United States government to appropriate more land uh, down in the States. And that's kind of what they did. Or you had to outright conquer them as they, they said they did when they did the, the, um, the Prairie Wars um, as time went on. Um, the thing with the States is that, like for both of them, but the, the problem here is as well, is how do, you, how do you get rid of this legitimacy that exists? Even in, in Western law, even in European law, it said that they were here, there's humans, you have to do this. Well, the other part of that was that they they assumed that you know we would all just die from disease because of how bad diseases took down uh, a lot of populations, especially well actually across Turtle Island. So it was just assumed that you know we would die off by the turn of the century, anyways. By the by the end of the 1900s, by the end of the 1800s, we would all be dead. We wouldn't survive because it's just you know progress. It's we weren't able to progress like everyone else was, so we were just going to eventually die off. So. So what, form these treaties that we're not going to have to honor through, you know, as long as the sun shines and rivers flow, they never had any plans to honor it because they thought we would be dead. Well, now the issue is, is that we're not dead. So <laughs> they have to figure out other ways. So the other way to do this is to erase us culturally and erase us territorially by also erasing us as existing in other ways. If we're not going to be murdered off, the other way is by legislative genocide is what I would call, which is what the Indian Act does. My number is 162004-6601. That says I am status Indian under section 27 uh, of the Indian Act. Um, but if I don't, if I don't, well, no. If, if my, my kids can be native, my kids will be status Indian according to uh, Canadian law, but then they would have to marry another native person for their kids to be to be considered Indian under, um, indigen under uh, Canadian law. Um, so there's problems there because eventually that whole process is that way we eventually go extinct because once we're extinct, then there's no... There's no indigenous land, it all becomes crown lands. So because you can't pass native land on to someone who's not native unless you surrender it to um, the crown. So, well, this dates back to exactly why John A. McDonald started doing some of the stuff he did and why we have to be careful with when we're talking about him because he was trying to rewrite history. He was trying to erase history. 
And part of that comes from what we know as settler colonialism. I said this at the end of our last podcast. I just want to reiterate before we go on. because <laughs> yep. It's important. Settler colonialism is a distinct type of colonialism that functions through the replacement of indigenous peoples with a settler society that over time develops a distinctive identity and concept of their sovereignty. Settler colonialism can be distinguished from other forms of colonialism in the following ways. Settler, settler colonizers come to stay. Settler colonial invasion is a structure, not an event. Settler colonialism seeks to end, it seeks its end, sorry, settler colonialism seeks its own end unlike other types of colonialism in which the goal is to maintain colonial structures and imbalances in power between colonizer and colonized. Settler colonization trends towards the ending of colonial difference in the form of a supreme and unchallenged settler state and people. And this comes about with us being assimilated and John and McDonald didn't want us to either continue to exist or to us to be absorbed because then there's no claims of us to have separate, which means Canada's sovereignty. And for him at the time, United Kingdom sovereignty here would be non, um, would not be able to be challenged. Um, so you have a history of rewriting that, you know, we're taught that indigenous structures of governance were, you know, not that complicated that it was just, you know, Sheftian and, you know, Ohio, and it was hereditary. Well, that's not the case. Uh, from the Haudenosaunee to the Anishinaabeg to the Blackfoot, the confederacy structures that those had are very complicated. The clan structure, uh, the seven grandfathers, for my people, the Minobe, like the understanding of law and following the right path for Minobamadzuin is so key to being that. And on top of this, this whole idea that, you know, you ha in order to be Indian or Ojibwe or Blackfoot, you have to also have this card. You have to have a certain amount of blood uh, or you have to be a certain generation of it before you're no longer native. That's all settler construct. That does not exist for us. We always had forms of citizenship and we had forms of adoption. Um, but it was to get rid of us. It's to erase the history that existed before that and that had continued to exist on top of that. Um, we forget that because we're not taught that part. We're not taught about the complications that existed throughout this time. We're not taught about how indigenous structures existed. We're not taught that the United States of America pretty much stole the idea of their confederation, the federation from the Haudenosaunee. The idea of different regions coming together and being equally represented come from indigenous confederations that already existed in, in the Americas. Um, let alone the fact that the United States stole the eagle symbol right away because that was a symbol for the Haudenosaunee as well. Um, we we don't get taught that especially in political science we're only starting to teach about that and it's usually from indigenous scholars who are in there who are influencing it now to be able to come that way yep. but you know we're usually at the end of the semester when we talk about indigenous stuff rather than throughout it um and that's key to remember when we're talking about this because when we talk about why you know statues being toppled over need to be debated or you know talking about how it has to follow the rule of law well let's talk about the rule of law with that so who is john and mcdonald right we yeah. have, we know about him to an extent. We like he was born in 1815 in Scotland. His family immigrated here in 1820. He died in 1891 in in Ottawa. Uh, we know of him as a family of. Uh, we know of him as a father of Confederation. He is one of the founding fathers of Canada. He was a lawyer. He lived in Kingston. Um, he also went on to represent uh, a district. Um, on well, he went to he went on he went on to become an alderman for. Kingston's city council back in the 1840s before he went on into being representative in the unionist government for the Canada's in the 1840s and on. Um, he was very much a supporter of the United Kingdom and its dominance and all things British. He very much believed that 
white people were the strongest people who had the best ability to do stuff. He was a Confederate sympathizer. He supported the Confederate side in the American Civil War. On top of this, he also drafted what we call the Gradual Civilization Act in 1857. This was an act that was done by the Canadas um, in just be like before Confederation 1867. This is what said that Native people could electively decide to join and become citizens within the monarch, within the empire. They could choose to come and join by doing that themselves. The only problem with that is that I think only from what I recall from my history, uh, my, my research, only one person ever electively decided to do it. This would give way to what would become the Indian Act where forced assimilation and integration would happen for anyone who had a degree, who had an education, who became a doctor, who were reverends, who did anything. And under the Gradual Civilizations Act, you could apply for it and you could be recognized for it. But under what would become later when it was forced, a committee that you didn't even have to apply to would come and tell you if you were civilized or not. So if someone was too white or too European acting for them, too educated, they could kind of say, now you are civilized and therefore you are no longer allowed to be involved with your community. Can we just say that's why when somebody says, oh my God, your English is so good, why it's even more insulting in a historical sense? Yeah. Um, is God, it's the- just revolting hearing you talk about this. But that was his, his goal. His idea was to get rid of us because for him, there was an Indian problem. We were in the way of progress. This is also a time when you see manifest destiny occurring in the States where they are attacking, invading, destroying, murdering um, members of the indigenous nations that were in, in the prairies down there in the plains um, and forcibly taking over moving forward, um, forcing them into treaties in some cases. Um, but that's what Johnny McDonald wanted. He wanted to be able to go all the way out to the coast as well. He wanted to be able to keep the Americans down because it was a threat to British supremacy and it was a threat to, to the loyalists in what is called Canada. Um, so his idea for forming Canada was also not only to, count, to, to counteract that, but he had a dream of having a whole area that was going to be British right from you know the East Coast right up to the West Coast. And we know he sought to do that when he brought in British Columbia in um, 1871 with the promise of... Um, I think it was 1871, sorry. <laughs> yep. but with, with the promise for uh, the, the Canadian Railroad, and that was part of why it was discussed for when they were going to join. And we saw that that got put into place because it was to connect to British Columbia, but it wasn't just to connect British Columbia to the east. It was to open up the prairies to European settlement and in the process of also subjugating and controlling the Indigenous nations of the prairies, as well as parts of the Anishinaabe and the Cree in the north parts of Ontario, or what we presently call Ontario. Um, you see that with the way the treaties are formed, how it's forced upon on them in some cases. You see the documentations from such as like clearing the, the book, Clearing the Plains, um, where uh, James Daschuk talks about how, you know, some of these did it because they thought it was the only way forward because they looked like there was going to be little ability to go forward without doing that. Um, but by this time, there's also the push to have them fully start to be deconstructed as who they are. Um, on top of that, you have the Red River Rebellion, you have the Northwest Rebellion in 1885. These are pushbacks against John A's idea of this this coast-to-coast thing of a a dominant entity that was going to be obviously through the UK as part of it. Um, So you have the Red River Rebellion because of the selling of, you know, no man, uh, oh my god, (laughs) having supposedly selling from the Hudson Bay Company all the territory in what is now central Canada all the the way over to to the British. Well, that included parts of what the Métis uh, consider their homeland. So 
how could that be done when they never agreed to that, especially when this was done before Manitoba joins in 1870? How could this even be done before that area is not even treated yet in 1871? So you have pushback. This leads to the rebellion. This leads to eventually Manitoba forming. This leads to a definition of what Métis is according to Canadian law. Um, but again, there's still issues about no treaty there. So you have the treaty, uh, the treaty number one of 1871, which would eventually be the, the process for treaties one through 11, as well as the final Williams Treaty, when the Williams Treaty brings in the provinces into the idea. So this modern treaty idea where the provinces and the federal government and an indigenous community sit there, it starts with the 1920s with the Williams Treaty when you have Ontario and Canada tell the Mississaugas and the Chippewas in central and southern Ontario what they're going to accept mm-hmm. um, in, in that form of treaty. But you have this whole thing going on and his whole process of this is because he wants to open it to that. He wants to get rid of us because we're in the way of progress. So on top of this, what does he do after he has the treaty signed and we're put into reservations? Well, you have to keep us tame. You have to keep us in place. So what gets formed? The Northwest Mounted Police. We see that our heritage commercial talking about how, you know, it's there to help keep the Americans out of all the gold that they're trying to claim in the, in the, in the, the Klondike and all that. No, they were formed to keep control in the prairies and to keep indigenous people in place. Prairie nations or prairie communities, reservations are big in numbers of how many people live there because people were forced into an area. And then usually there's a fort not too far away from, uh, from indigenous communities out there. Um, It was to keep them in check. And then when that wasn't necessarily working, the other plan, especially after the rebellion of 1885, where the Métis said no because of what was being done in Manitoba, at the same time you have an uprising, not an uprising, but you have pushback from two different Indigenous nations, uh, First Nations specifically, in the prairies, who also simultaneously as the Métis are pushing back, rise up against it. Um, But just talking about like that, we're using, we use the term rebellion in Canadian history, how is it a rebellion when these people aren't even in Canadian territory? Um, this is just a war. This is a pushback against intruders and invaders. We need to remember that as well. When we talk about the Red River Rebellion, the um, 1885 Rebellion, it's not a rebellion. These are invasions by outside sources. Um, and when that isn't going his way, that railroad that is almost completed in 1885 becomes a key way of bringing out more military to do what? To suppress, to murder, to try indigenous leaders who are not actually under the control of, um, uh, of, of Canada or the crown. But on top of that, a way to keep them in check after that, which we don't talk about in Canadian history and which is a kind of part of the big thing that we hear right now, Macdonald purposely had Indian agents withdraw and hold food and medical ability and medical help for prairie nations in order to starve them into subjugations. His actions led to the murder and death and starvation of thousands of indigenous people, first nations, Métis people on the prairies. Um, And it was used in other areas. Again, the Williams Treaty, we used to, not just the Williams Treaty, but when Europeans settled in the area that my community is from, they built a dam that flooded our, our substance. Like we were a big reliance on Minoman wild rice. Um, it's why my community is called Minoman canning. We are Mississaugas of Rice Lake because where I'm from, it's a lake now, but it used to be more of a, a marshy area that had lots of wild rice. So we had game, we had duck, we had fish. Um, it was very good. So we were able to stay very sustainable on our own until they flooded it. And then once they flooded it, we needed to rely on, foodstuffs from the government because we weren't allowed to leave without permission, just like any other First Nation person. Um, so when it came time for them to come and ask us to re-sign a new treaty to surrender all of Toronto and parts of what is now Belleville, Belleville Peterborough and um, up towards like Simcoe and out towards like Huron, 
how are we going to have a choice when they're going to be like, oh, well, we'll just keep your food from you. On top of this, we weren't allowed legal representation during this time. So you have this happening during this time. So you have a man who purposely murdered people. He supported the Confederacy and his right-hand man, Duncan Campbell Scott, is the person who's put in charge of education of native people, which he is well quoted as saying, you know, we need to beat and kill the Indian out of the child. On top of that, he knew the, the death rate of Indigenous students, specifically First Nations students in the residential schools, was high from disease. It was high from malnutrition. It, he knew they were being beaten to death in some cases too, but it wasn't worth dropping them because the whole, whole outcome was to make sure we no longer existed, whether culturally or physically. Um, I know, but I, it's so hard for me to imagine being proud of genocide, but that was the time. I remember when I went to Ottawa for my one and only time, I stayed at the Lord Elgin and I had read a little bit about him. And it was really clear to me that that era of politicians very clearly were trying to win favor of the crown. So whether, you know, the, the king at the time and to try to um, amplify and, you know, basically their egos were so well driven that they would be proud to kill and maim all of these folks. And in fact, Lord Elgin actually had a family here and that he happily um, left in order to go back to Britain in the hopes that he had gained their favor. And he ended up taking his sons who were, you know, mixed at that time and, um, and left his wife. And then his wife that was in Britain didn't appreciate his new family, obviously. And uh, they didn't speak of that. And it, it was so gross and disgusting, but at the same time, that era of politician were proud to be colonizers, rapists, proud to start families and leave them and proud to, you know, steal someone's land as long as it, you know, looked good in the king to the king. Yeah. And going back to John and McDonald, nations petitioned him, chiefs petitioned him to stop doing what he was doing. They petitioned for things to be decided and that things weren't going right. But of course they weren't going the way that it was promised to First Nations people or to the Métis because there was no plan for it to go that way. It was tyranny of the majority. And that's a situation that happens to First Nations in and Métis people in Canada is the tyranny of the majority. So when I hear people talking about how, you know, we have to have a referendum or a discussion on it, well, how do you protect those people who have suffered a legacy of rewriting history, erasing history, and erasing their identity? And then on top of that, those Canadians who are not taught this history... So they're going to go to a poll to vote against what they're calling a founding father, someone who is important to them, about removing a statue about them. Well, then that's, you know, that's cancel culture. And that's, you know, erasing this because, you know, people leading heart liberals and all this stuff. Well, how do you counter that as someone who is First Nation in UNMAT against what we call the tyranny of the majority? Because that vote will obviously go for most Canadians. And this isn't just a white settler thing anymore. We, this is a settler thing. You have to differentiate between white settler and just settler. Canada is multicultural. Canada has multiple people of multiple national, nationalities, multiple backgrounds from different modern states, uh, different citizenships with some countries, who also think this way about John and McDonald because they're taught to think that way. Um, and we forget that sometimes when we're talking about it. And I guess that's when I can, I can read some of these tweets now if you, if you want. I'd love to. So what kind of got me off, and I know some people are, don't enjoy talking or get mad at Michelle, uh, Michelle Rempel, um, 
when uh, they're talking with her because you know she she does she does block people but there's usually you know for for reasons that that's her, that's her thing I, I can't explain why but um sorry I'm gonna go by her her full name Michelle Rempel Rempel Gardner I, I follow her on Twitter and there's been some interaction but it's it's usually not gone negative because I'm I'm not ever trying to be negative with certain things I don't find her to me personally to be nasty and mean I find you know Pierre Polyver Polyev to be nasty and mean I I find um. Who would be another example? What was the, the liberal MP from, from uh, St. John who lost the seat after he told uh, Inu to eat less meat? Um, can't what? remember his name. Say that again? Remember that? The, uh, the MP from uh, one of the, the writings in St. John's after the, the mercury poisoning was a concern for the Muskrat Fall Dam? Uh, be it, remember uh, the elder who was arrested and put in jail out west? I mean, out east? Um, so there was, there was questions about the mercury poisoning that will occur and how it's going to affect the fish. And his response was, eat less fish. Oh, you know what? Wasn't he the Indian Act or the Indian Affairs Minister actually under Harper? Wasn't it that guy? No, no, this is a liberal um, MP. Oh. Let me see. Um, cause now I'm, I'm curious. Cause yeah, I know. Uh, now we got to know because, uh, because uh, who says that? Jesus Christ! Sorry. <laughs> he lost to he lost to the NDP this this election. Um, so he he originally beat out Jack Harris, but Jack Harris came and beat beat him again. Um, where is it? What a jerk! Of course he would say something like that, but you know. Wait. Say it again. <laughs> Nick Whalen. He was the MP uh, from 2015 to 2019 for St. John's East. He was quoted as saying to, to Indigenous people, Inuit people, Inuit people who were worried about being um, poisoned with mercury from the new dam to just eat less, less fish. So, um, like, so th th these are the type of people in their comments that I find ridiculous with how they come about it. So she had, um, she had just, she had posted um, stuff in regards to the, the toppling of the statue, which I kind of, you know, engaged and asked a question about because I thought it was, um, I, I wanted to know what was, uh, what was more meant by it. Um, I just have to find out where they are. Did she seriously reply to you? Because she doesn't reply to a lot of people. She, 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 she responded because I asked her, I'm like, well, how do we, uh, I, I'll, I'll say what I said after I, I find out um, what she said. That's really good though. I, um, I did end up blocking her because, um, I think it was uh, during Jody Wilson-Rainbow and, and SNC-Lavalin. You know, a lot of, as you know, a lot of liberals came out as very racist and, and as did the conservatives. And it's just, honestly, it's really hard to even read that crap anymore. And I, I just couldn't anymore for my mental health. I just couldn't read her crap. So I, I bl ended up blocking her. I block a lot of people, though. If you're conservative, I see you as, uh, you know, the staffers, um, you know, they they don't use Twitter for good. They only use it for bad. So that's why part of it. Yeah. It's, 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 it's difficult with how it's approached. There's like, I'm surprised Jason Kenny hasn't blocked me. Cause we had a whole thing about how, who, who's allowed to talk for indigenous people. And he tried to say that, you know, there has to be a way of restricting who is one through the Indian act pretty much because, you know, he has Algonquin background. So does that make him right to be able to be Algonquin and like go talk to the elders of the community? That you're Gross. You know yeah. what? He actually did block me on his uh, provincial Facebook page. So that was when I decided I would block all of his people, all the UCP supporters, um, both on, on Facebook and Twitter because they don't use it to listen and they didn't want to give me a platform to actually give a counterpiece and they didn't know how to respond to me. So his staffers actually uh, blocked me on his Facebook page. 
<laughs> Where is the conversation? So of course we had no way to interact with each other during the provincial election as um, you know, here I am trying to talk about indigenous issues and uh, because as people wouldn't, you know, obviously interact with me or let me interact with him on uh, his Facebook page. I was like, screw you. And you can't interact with me. <laughs> Cause I know they don't, they would just take it out of context and not give me a space to actually um, explain whether it was 94 calls to action or the 231 calls to justice. Did you find it? Yeah. So like, I let me do a little bit of digging. She had said, um, Someone has said, my vote would be to tear them all down. Why do we even need statues of anyone or anything, including colorful sidewalks? She, and then someone said, you said vote. The key matter at heart, if we are a democracy, every voice is weighed and a decision is made. The mob does not rule. And I, I understand to an extent there's an issue with mob rule. So I said, um, so I had said, I'm like, how do we vote on it without making some Canadians feel like Canadian identity isn't being erased? Well, Indigenous also renew and relearn theirs all while moving forward together. I've been pondering this for the last few months myself, but there was also um, another part that I'd asked her about. Where is it? So I said, first of all, I said, I agree rule, rule by mob is, is as bad as rule by tyranny and by genocide. What about tyranny of majority and such votes? I understand for some John A is a father. For many First Nations, he is a destroyer of life and nations we may not we, with many not knowing this part of his legacy, how do we reconcile? And then I followed it up with, um, I said, my comment is meant honestly and with no malice. I follow up question for my family. He is a symbol of much oppression and destruction, Irish, Irish and Anishinaabe here. How can I and others like me be protected from such votes with stereotypes that continue to exist? I said, how do we vote? And then I said, how do we vote on it without making some Canadians feel like Canadian identity isn't being erased? Well, Indigenous also are renewing theirs and re-entrenching it, um, all while moving forward together. Um, so she had just responded, you know, um, where is it? Cause I shared it because she responded, which was really nice of her. And I, I told her, thank you. She just said, um, she said, being able to figure this, sh this shit out <laughs> should be the national identity of Canada, as opposed to Trudeau who claims that we don't have one where we were either a pluralism that figures out how to respect the rights of first nations and indigenous persons, or we will see civil disobedience. And so I said, I said, we for responding. My cues came from my Anishinaabeg and academic understandings. I'm like, and being a military brat, I've not been party affiliated in two years. I feel all political parties can do better and have a long way to go, not use indigenous people as political chess game in a political chess game. I'm like, thank you for responding. So this is my conversation with her, which I was very thankful for. Yeah. Uh, allowed for discussion i ended up having some conservative people follow me which was really interesting because i think they'll probably re-choose that in a couple of days <laughs> but um then it goes alongside of you know aaron o'toole saying canada wouldn't exist without sir john a mcdonald canada is a great country and one we should be proud of we will not build a better future by defacing our past it's time politicians grow background and stand up for our country well to aaron o'toole i would say there's no way going forward into a future while also doing reconciliation while ignoring the past and not taking into consideration that that great person to him made it that way by destroying and murdering and starving hundreds of thousands of other people to death um, without that person being responsible for why I don't know to, to, to the full extent, my Mississauga background, my Mississauga language, why I don't know and haven't been able to participate from the very beginning in my clan or understanding probably more about my family's history than I am allowed to now because of it being erased or being destroyed or being ignored. Um, that that man made it so that way my, my grandfather 
lost out on a lot of opportunities simply because he was First Nation. My mother lost out on opportunities because she was simply First Nations. Um, again, the Williams Treaty, I said this last time we were on a call, we finalized a land claim agreement. My mom passed away a month after that land claim was formalized. Her, my grandfather, my grandfather, my great grandfather suffered under that new treaty that was forced on us that we were unilaterally made to sign and didn't get to um, benefit from their hunting and fishing rights. My mom would have uh, from 2012 on because that was also banned. It was the only treaty that supposedly took away hunting and fishing rights from native people, which is why it was entrenched back to us in 2012 uh, for those who are Mississauga and Chippewa. But my mom had to start a lot of decolonization I don't speak the level of Anishinaabe Moen that I would like to speak, but there's a reason for that. This great man he talks about is for that. Why are we doing reconciliation today? Because this great man made it so that way it wasn't going to almost exist and that we wouldn't exist as who we are today. Um, we wouldn't exist at all if he had his way. We probably would be all dead um, uh, for being that Indigenous background. And I say we would be dead because if it had been the way that he wanted to, our ancestors wouldn't have survived it. And therefore we wouldn't be here today and that's one of my favorite things to say to people who are like well how do we solve the problems and i'm like well follow the treaties and they're like well that's a lot of money and they'll start going on and especially when it becomes clear that these people had their own mindset on how to do it they had an idea that they wanted me to solidify when i realize that's the case that they're coming from i usually say well you know if you had murdered us, murdered us all off then you wouldn't have that problem today and when you say that to anyone from the, any political stripe they're like uh well i didn't mean that i'm just like well you asked me how to fix it you didn't like what i had to say you clearly had your own idea Yep. So your idea would only work if, you know, we didn't exist today. So figure it out. Uh, listen to us. Um, so Aaron O'Toole said that. Um, and then, you know, you have... Um, hey, can I ask you just quickly off topic? Um, I'm actually seeing a lot of uh, folks that we would consider mutual friends and such saying positive things about Aaron O'Toole's social um, policies and belief system. In, and I just didn't pay attention because he's blue and I right now have no time and space for those people. So I was just wondering, did you think at all he's a little more progressive than the uh, past, you know, Jason Kenney's or Stephen Harper's? So he could be. Um, he did do that whole speech after he got um, elected as leader about wanting to enlarge in the blue tent. Um, what we need to remember in settler societies like that is here Canada, it doesn't matter the political spectrum you have settler colonialism throughout the political spectrum. You have NDP, you have liberals, you have conservatives who think indigenous people just need to shut up and assimilate and integrate. That we shouldn't have special rights as they call it. So even if he's a little bit more progressive, that's great as, as, an L, as someone who's two-spirited or LGBT, cool, yeah, he wants to open the party to be more accepting of LGBT people. My, my gay side is like fabulous, but um, that doesn't translate to the same. Yes, exactly. Uh, that does. That's that doesn't translate to indigenous people. Indigenous people, no matter the political spectrum, tend to still be targets. As I've tried to explain to my class, usually the way I talk about it at the end of the, the year when we're talking about breaking down barriers, I have never had to defend being gay yep. in Canada, but on a daily basis, I defend being native. So, and that's because it is socially unacceptable now. It's becoming more and more unacceptable to target LGBT people but it's still okay to target native people yep. that's because of the lack of understanding the education on it. Um, What's his whole slogan, take Canada back. I mean, some of us joked about how, you know, <laughs> how far back do you want to go? But ultimately that is a real uh, colonial mindset. Well, let's take Canada back. Uh, where did you ever lose it? 
Well, it wasn't ever yours to begin with. There's parts that never treated. So, mm -hmm. so if we're going to take Canada back, in what way are you going to put all the youth who are First Nations back into residential schools and right. remove certain rights and re-put back into place institutional stuff that attacks um, First Nations people? And this is where the political chess game comes in, because they're, they're talking like this, and then you have some more of the progressive sides, or some of the people who are a little bit more friendly to understanding, because... Michelle Rempel, like I will give her credit because she says that she understands that, you know, we have to approach, we, we need to acknowledge First Nations rights and that systematic history that exists there. And I'm thankful that she says that because there's not a lot of conservatives you hear that from. So I'm thankful to hear her say that. However, sometimes, just like in the Liberals and the NDP, they don't quite understand what that means yeah. when people try to tell them what that means. And so then that's the problem because it still becomes a top-down approach. So, well, no, you have to do it the way we think. So, so that's not really understanding. That's still coming at us in a colonial and ward of the state uh, point of view. It's still ma and pa telling us what to do. Um, and that becomes a big problem with that because then how are we supposed to actually move forward? You're, you're understanding that that's good, but you have to understand that you need to listen to us more instead of still being like, oh, well, you know, you need to meet us halfway. I think First Nations people especially um, have met Canada and its representatives more than halfway, either because they had a gun to the head or they were starved to submission or because they were forced to do it. It was either that or nothing. Um, so I think in First Nations people have done more than enough of meeting halfway. Um, Surviving genocide, I think, is enough. Yep. Exactly. And so that's, that's the problem that comes to exist with that as well. But so you have, again, this political chess game coming into play. You have politicians pointing out, well, you know, Trudeau Sr. did this. Trudeau Sr. did this, the white paper. Yes, he did. Let's go through the facts. John A. Macdonald, Gradual Civilizations Act in, the 18, in 1857. You have the formation of the colonies without Indigenous people there. Those are all the founding fathers at fault for that. The idea that Indigenous people didn't need to be there, they had no place to that. You had... Um, the agreement to recognize the Métis through the Manitoba Act and then quickly sending out English Canadians from Ontario and Quebec to go colonize it and take over and be the majority, therefore creating tyranny of the majority and rescinding everything that was supposed to recognize Métis culture and language. Um, and then after that, you have the forceful assimilation through the Indian Act. You have the Indian Act of 1876. That comes out of Mackenzie, um, that comes out of Mackenzie King. Because Mackenzie King, who was a liberal pre prime minister, was in charge at that time. So the liberals introduced the Indian Act. Macdonald kept it and made changes to it throughout the rest of his time until 1891 when he died. You have petition after petition from different chiefs to Macdonald, to Mackenzie King, to Laurier, to the little in-between conservatives that existed as well in the 1890s. You have this ongoing, you have further assimilation and further deconstructing of Indigenous people, specifically First Nations, throughout the early 1900s under um, Laurier and then through um, World War One. You have um, the outline of our of our governance structures. You have the outline of our language and our traditions and our and our and our cultural practices and our social gatherings. Um, going through the 30s, you have by the 30s you have not only residential schools in place, but you have forced residential schools on students who are forced to go there. You have students who go missing, students who just disappear, students who are murdered, students who die trying to flee from it, from the abuse that's going on them. You have at the St. Anne's Residential School, an electric chair for students well through uh, Mackenzie King's um, tenure. Uh, you have Mackenzie King saying that Canada is better as a white and Christian nation. You have um, 
you have Lester B. Pearson, the human rights founder um, and, and, and a writer of the charter for the, for, um, for the UN, who is prime minister during this time. You have, obviously before him, you have Louis St. Laurent. You have all these people. You have Trudeau who comes in, who, yes, he says, you know, the state has no place in the bedroom of the nations, but then tries to forcibly assimilate all indigenous people, uh, followed by during the constitutional debates in the 80s, constantly get mad at indigenous people. Um, saying, I don't even know what you want. And then at one point, purposely leading the premiers and himself in the Lord's Prayer to drown out chiefs who are doing a spiritual um, um, prayer just before the starting of negotiations and discussions over the Constitution Act that would eventually come into place in 1982. This is on video. You can YouTube it. You can look up him purposely saying, get that stuff away from me. It stinks. And then purposely and on purpose drowning out the prayer from these chiefs. Um, in the Lord's Prayer with his fellow um, white male premiers. Um, after that, you have, you have Mulroney, who was promising to do stuff. Mulroney wasn't that bad for being in the 80s. He did try a lot. Uh, he was trying to do a lot, and that was a problem. But um, you, have, uh, you have an Indigenous MP from the writing of Wataskiwin, uh, who was in his government during that entire time. You have Chrétien, who takes over, who is a big part of the... Uh, of the white paper and was Indian affairs at a time when things were pushed. Um, you can go on through them all. And then that's not even talking provinces. Uh, Tommy Douglas believed in eugenics and sterilization. He thought that yes, uh, you should decriminalize LGBT um, people, but that they should still be sterilized because they are mentally sick and shouldn't be able to procreate. He also agreed, didn't, didn't necessarily think indigenous people should be allowed to procreate because we were undesirable as well. Um, you have a push for him to, as he said, let us control our Indians in, in Saskatchewan. The whole idea of social services and health and education being under, under the provincial jurisdiction when it comes to native people is because of his government in Saskatchewan. Um, same with Quebec pushing on it. And then you see this all get turned over to the provinces, but Quebec does the same thing. Quebec says, you know, during the 1994 re referendum, um, let us handle our Indians, you handle yours. When uh, liberal cabinet ministers were up north talking to the Cree and, and the Inuit and um, the process exists there and it doesn't matter the party. This is the system that exists. So on top of that, you also have the judicial system. Why are we being told we should go through the democratic process, a democratic process that only included all First Nations people, men and women of legal age to vote from 1969 on. 1960 is when First Nations people got the right to vote as status Indians on reserve, men and women, 1960, but it wasn't until 1969 that Quebec extended the franchise provincially. So it didn't actually fully go across all territory, our own territories until 1969. Did we agree to that? Did we want that? That's a whole other debate. Diefenbaker, yes, they like the, the, the conservatives like to talk about how Diefenbaker gave us the right to vote. That's not what we ever asked for. We asked for the recognition of our nations and our governance because our governance was outlawed in a system that never was ours, a system that was unilaterally put on us. So why are we going to trust the justice system of a settler state that has been always put into place to undermine our own existence? Yeah. Why would we be looking towards the justice system of Canada to keep us alive or to recognize us when it has been put in place to not recognize us and to actually deconstruct us even more. Yes. So these are the things that exist in this. So why are we going to trust the system? Why would we trust a democratic process where we were denied until 1969 across the country, federally until 1960? Um, and in, in the case of Inuits, denied because ballot boxes weren't provided to some of their communities until the 70s, even though they had the right to vote from 1951 on. Um, why are we going to trust the justice system when, especially for the Inuit, you know, 
there was a debate over who had control over them well into the 1920s. The feds tried to say the provinces and the provinces said the feds. And so that's why nothing happened until the 1930s when it came to Inuit. But um, also the fact that we undermine provincial ability to have resource claims over in, in some places. And you see that obviously in Alberta right now, um, where they're electing a government who constantly says, you know, native people can be in the way or they are in the way, um, especially with what they did with, with outline, um, outline um, protesting, how, how they did that, how it specifically targets First Nations people. Um, yeah. yeah. It goes after the infrastructure. It's actually written so loosely that uh, they can decide that my house is infrastructure and come in and invade my home and take me, my kid, kill my dog. It's okay because it's underbuilt one. And I wonder if that is in case if a community or a First Nation ever opposes it, they can try to claim that even though it's not under provincial jurisdiction. There is a lot of problems coming out of it with what Jason, Jason Kenney is yeah. trying to do. Um, it's problematic when you have that because Jason Kenney was elected by a majority of voters. Trudeau was elected by a majority of voters. Harper was. It goes on and on. No, anytime anyone has been elected, anything that was progressively promised to Indigenous people tends to fall to the wayside. You have that from NDP provincial governments. You have that from liberal governments. Um, the Conservatives, they've, we've always known where we stood with them. They're the only ones who've never really lied to us in a sense because we already knew where we were with them. Um, they may re-change how a title of something says and says it's not targeting First Nations people or they, you know, they'll flout around their, tar their, their token Indigenous person. Unfortunately, like obviously Patrick Brazil, Senator Patrick Brazil was one of those for a while used by them. Um, Rob Clark, um, the former health minister for an uh, MP for none of it. Why am I not remembering her name? I should know this. Yeah, I just... Eleanor or Eleanor. I can't remember her name. She was, didn't she, didn't she have the orange juice problem? Like her orange juice. Well, was uh, you're, you're, thinking, you're thinking of Bev Oda. <laughs> oh yes. Yes. So no, this, this is the one who um, wrote, uh, who, when asked about problems in Nunavut for food subsidy, like for food scarcity, uh, she picked up, she picked and opened up the paper and completely ignored it as if it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, I remember her. I just can't remember her name offhand. It's so crazy how uh, so much happens so quickly that we can't remember some of their names when they used to come just off the tongue. So, um, mm -hmm. Leona Elgar. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you, Sydney. Because I couldn't, I was trying to remember her name at the beginning, but um, like you, you, you have those ones you get tied around so that way they can claim that they're not being racist with the policies. You have the same thing in my mind. I'm no offense to the new justice minister for, for Alberta, but um, and this is where we'll talk about like quickly, we'll talk about allyship and what it looks like when we're talking about settlers and the fact that it doesn't just include white people when we talk about settlers, but um, Justice Minister Casey Madu. Uh, he, he said, this madness needs to stop. Governments across our country must take steps to rein in these violent activists. They serve no identifiable good to the cause of justice or equality. So, who's violent? Pardon? No. I said, so he, who's violent? So he followed up with, no nation or leader is perfect. Well, we still have work to do. Our world has made tremendous progress. I want my daughters and sons, son to learn all of our history, good and bad. That's how we move forward. Many communities, including those with significant populations of immigrants, indigenous peoples, and other visible minorities face high rates of crime and rely on the police to serve and protect them each and every day. We must strengthen our law enforcement and make reforms where needed, not defund the police or defame those who bear enormous risks to keep our people and communities. Followed by, our nation's founders and the men and women who put on a uniform to serve and protect deserve our respect and gratitude. So first of all, 
this is what happens when stuff like this goes on. You have a high profile person who is a person of color talking. So he's denouncing it. And this will be touted around for a while. Well, the Justice Minister for Alberta said this. He's black. Uh, so it's denouncing this. Um, they do it with Indigenous people too. Um, there is clearly also a generational gap between how the protests are occurring now and how they were in the past. We need to remember, um, Martin Luther King was considered to be a rioter and causing problems. There was a, there was a, a cartoon chair around from the 60s saying, you know, we will continue our peaceful protests. And then you see the reporter being like, peaceful? Question mark. You see nothing but destruction in the background. And on top of that, what ended up happening to him? He they was shot and shot. killed him anyway. Um, this is the problem that happens there. They're freaking out now. What we're talking about now in regards to, to, to Alexander, uh, to, um, to any of the previous leaders, especially John and McDonald, Alexander McKenzie, the, who was the pre prime minister, like I said, who, who brought in the Indian Act. We've been talking about this since the time that they were prime minister, since the time that they were in government. That hasn't changed. And it seems every 10 to 15 years we're repeating. It's the same thing with when they do reports. The reports said the same thing. Education for First Nations people has been saying, the reports that came out on that have been saying the same, same thing since the early 1900s. It's the exact same problems that have existed. Um, We've been saying the same things about these people who have done this and nothing was done then. Why is it now we're being told to go use the system that's in place, a system that was used to never let us be in place and to have a place um, when the whole existence of it is based on undermining us? You have to deconstruct it. I don't necessarily agree with the term defund the police because I know in a sense of what's trying to be done, I get why it's being said, but it's, it ticks off people who don't understand. The police structure is very much benefited from a union, and that union is to protect the police officers. If you're going to restructure it, you need to actually deconstruct it and rebuild it. Saying defund it is scaring people because it's the assumption that you know you're not going to put anything else in place because somehow that's the thought. I don't get why it's that way. But so when I talk to people, I try to talk about how well you know it's you know it's to to make sure that you can actually put a structure in place that's best for people, not just one that is based off of it. And we need to remember the police structure and the Northwest Mountain, the RCMP, they are based off of keeping people in place. Certain people who are in the way and that they've also had, yeah, they've also had um, a culture that has existed there for, for, for decades now. And part of that part of the Canadian identity about looking down upon Indigenous people being in the way, being in the way of progress, getting too many rights, you know, getting benefits, you know, paying, pay, I'm, you know, I'm, I get money because of your, their taxpayer dollars. <laughs> I wish. OSAP will only for life, like I've said. Um, but um, there's that whole process. So they have the justice minister coming out and speaking about this. And what really flustered me and frustrated me so much was, yes, there's high crime rates. Well, why are those high crime rates there? Well, for instance, you know, in, in order to do anything economically on a reserve, you have to go through every hoop that you can. And then, you know, everything's on fire. And then by the time you're on the other side of the hoop, you're on fire. And you're just like, okay, this is cool. This is fine, as it's this always said. Yeah. But the other issue I had with this was to claim that by not honoring these statues or by, by denouncing the issues or by, by highlighting the issues within the police structure that exists now, we're somehow dishonoring those who wear a uniform. I take complete insult to that as someone who has a mother who served this country, a mother who had potentially been used for medical experiments in the 60s and 70s when she was a kid. When it first came out that there was proof that medical experiments were used and done to Indigenous children, she went silent for a couple of hours. And when I was, she brought it up to me. She was like, you know, back when I was little, I remember my, she, she said that she remembered her, my aunt, because my mom was the oldest of the siblings um, and, and two of her brothers who were born at the time going up with my grandmother to the band office where they were giving shots 
and my grandmother asked what the shots were for and she was ignored. So that really bothered my mom because she had no clue why it was done. My mom served at a time when it was hard for a woman to be in the military, but on top of that, a First Nation woman. My mom was four years old when she was given Canadian citizenship simply because Diefenbaker decided we should be citizens and that would solve our problems. My mom was denied any rights to her territory before that. My mom served in peacekeeping rules, in military rules, in policing rules. My mom wore a uniform from 75 until 1992. So how dare he tell me that by standing up against a colonial structure like John and McDonald's statue isn't somehow demeaning people like my mother who fought and did stuff for this country. I'm sorry, he has, he's a justice minister. He has not actually gone and put on a uniform himself and gone out onto the front like my mother has. My mother did. My mother died 11 days after being diagnosed with cancer because in my mind, institutional racism that exists in the system. How did she go undiagnosed for months? There's always an assumption that people from my community are looking for pills. I would love to see a comparative thing done. I talked to you about this before, but how dare you make a comment that that's dishonoring me questioning John A. McDonald's existence and how we look at it and questioning why we have statues of him up is supporting and standing up for people like my mother. There are tons of people who are a minority background who serve this country. How dare he say something like that? And I guarantee you it was used by, it was done for, it was, he was expected to do it because he is one of us, as it is a sense. He is a part of that minority background, so it's harder to come after him for anything. Well, I'm sorry. I may look white, but I am two-spirited. I come from a single mother who grew up on a reservation. No, my mother served this country, and what did she get in the end? She got 11 days from being diagnosed with stage four cancer until the end because she is native. Um, what else did she get? She had a hard time being able to go back and get her education because of the stereotypes that existed there. The things that she fought and the things that she did for Canada yeah. in no way amounts to being able to make a comment like that to somehow make it say that I'm not honoring those. I believe in the military. I believe in the justice system. The justice system needs to be reworked and so does the police system. Um, but to claim that that's not honoring them, that is a slap in the face of people like myself who grew up in the military bases, who grew up from minority parents, who grew up from female parents in the military who understand the hardships that it was to do stuff and had that time taken away. I lost time with my mother while she served this country only to have her pass away way too young because of stereotypes that exist there in my mind. Um, and I will argue that till my face is blue because there's no reason why she should have had more time than she did. But my mom lost time with her children, a single mother, first nation woman lost time with her children. Yeah while she was doing stuff and serving Canada, yep. all while still basing, learning and all while, you know, still suffering from the legacy of colonization, not knowing her language, her, her traditions. She did not know her clan. She did not know her language until the early 90s when she started relearning them, when it was okay to start relearning them where I was from. So for him to say that, that's just adding like salt and lemon juice to the wounds of someone who gave all their time and lost time with it. My mom, like I said, six months in Egypt, helping with peacekeeping, military police, uh, military security deal, detail at the Montreal Olympics, helping with refugees coming here from fleeing situations where they were being murdered or being hunted down, um, helping with a search and rescue operation in Northern Quebec uh, in 85, missing, no, 84, sorry, she missed my first Christmas when I was born because she volunteered to go on a search and rescue for a plane that had crashed in Northern Quebec. She missed my second birthday because she had spent six months in Egypt. She missed my fifth birthday while she was doing training um, out 
it might have been Edmonton. I can't remember because I was in Winnipeg at that time. But I remember being like I was with our babysitter and a close friend of ours for my fifth birthday because my mom was not able to be there. My mom almost had to go to the Gulf War, but they wouldn't let single parents go. Um, so my mom did a lot. And to say that by questioning this and, you know, not acknowledging the 150 plus years of people who are angry about nothing being done about this person and just saying, oh, you know, he did good things too. Well, yeah, he did good things too. Hitler drew nice pictures and painted nice pictures, but that does not excuse the mean and horrible things and the murdering of millions of Jewish people, gypsies, um, not, sorry, Romas. Oh my God, I used the wrong term, but to, to, to the murder of Romas, the murder of LGBT people, Slavs, political prisoners, like he, that doesn't excuse, that's like saying, well, you know, he, he got the economy going up Germany in the 30s after he took over. That does not excuse what he did. Or, you know, like, oh, Stalin, you know, he formalized things that way, you know, the USSR would last well into the, until the late 80s. He murdered tons of people. That doesn't take away from that. And it's no yeah. different with John A. McDonald than pretending like, oh, you know, he did all these good things, so we should celebrate him. No, that's, that's not the case that needs to be done. You see other countries who have had to reassess what past leaders have done and remember that. Yeah. Um, so if we're going to have a discussion about it, well, then why haven't we had the discussion about it for the last 150 years? Agreed. Why Agreed. has not be brought up? So, like, again, it's the same thing with... Um, a political scientist prof, just quickly, um, from Mount Royal University, had said, you know, um, where'd it go? He was talking about symbolism and, you know, how we, we put symbols on money and we have statues and all that stuff. And, you know, it has to be decided by the populace and amongst by the people to bring it down. Well, where was the decision from? Our peoples, when they decided to, you know, build things that they decided to, when they decided to in Edmonton to bulldoze a burial ground into the North Saskatchewan River, where was the decision to, um, where was where was our people's decisions in when they when the French decided to build Quebec and Montreal and Trois Rivières on Mohawk territory, so on and so on, like, or the destruction of key landmarks, important things, burial grounds, sacred sites. Where was the indigenous? Where, where was the Mohawk discussion when it came time to to uh, build more of that golf course in Oka? Well, we see what happened with that. Or when they decided to usurp um, what was Stony Point for war preparation and planning and um, practice um, in 1940s that led to the Ipperwash, um, the the Ipperwash standoff, as it's called. Yeah. Um, these are the things that comes up with this that we're not talking about. So when they're talking about symbols, they're symbols, they're symbols. But we're not having the discussions about why those symbols are a problem. We've tried. Indigenous people have tried. People who have learned about it have tried. But they react this way and say that we need to follow the proper channels because we knocked down a statue after talking about how problematic it has been for ever since he was Canadian Prime Minister. Um, we can find many sources that talk about his problematic history for the last 20 years alone. Yeah. I, you know, I've been running this book club for four years, over four years now. And I mean, there are still people who think that they are politically astute, who still don't know what the 94 calls to action are and still don't know anything about Indigenous people. And then they have the audacity to have an opinion about it. And I get so tired of it. So I really appreciate you being on my show. Well, thank you. I'm sorry for going a little bit there. Very irritated with it. And instead of replying to a whole bunch of things, this was one way of being able to talk about it. And I'm glad that you wanted to talk about it. Oh, yeah. I think that, uh, especially what you said about your mom, and I honor her, definitely. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you shared what you shared, because um, one of my local elders, and I don't know if he'd appreciate me naming him, he also served. 
And um, you know, he went over to Juneau Beach to do a ceremony to call the spirits back. And, uh, and and it's an incredible story. I hope somebody does a documentary on it or something because it's a, a beautiful story. And the contributions our, our people have always given to this country despite the ongoing genocide that continues to this day. Um, I don't know how anyone can dispute, one, how resilient we are, but two, how giving we are and how we've tried so hard to honor our ancestors' treaties and, and honor the intent of them welcoming newcomers here. So I'm, I'm grateful that you're here to talk about those things and go ahead. One point. So I'm not necessarily opposed to keeping statues up, but plaques and other statues to go alongside of it highlighting the dark part of those people's histories needs to go up. Something showing what he did needs to go alongside of it if they're going to talk about it. And this has been something that has been suggested by people for decades. So now all of a sudden it's okay that that's a suggestion thing after the, the, the statue's been toppled because no one did anything about it before. So if you're going to have a serious conversation about putting up additional things to showcase what that person actually did that was negative, then do it. Stop yes. now, you know, well, we should do this. And you, you had time. So that's the yeah. other thing I wanted to point out because people will probably think that I'm opposed to this. Take it down, put it in a put it in a museum, put up another plaque or put up another statue with it. Just don't leave it the way it is and stop saying, you know, you have to follow the civil way of doing this. You can't do mob mentality. This isn't mob mentality. This is frustration after 150 plus years of not doing anything about it. Absolutely. So remember and, that. and in solidarity with our black brothers and sisters, because this was, um, you know, uh, a response to the murder of George Floyd as well. I mean, you know, they are the first ones to acknowledge that, you know, while they were forced on slave ships to come here and build North America for the white settler uh, population, you know, they are the first to acknowledge it was on stolen land. And that's why I, I try to honor our black brothers and sisters as they do this work. And I'm so grateful that they give us a platform and talk about these things as well, because we are the racism and oppression that we've always faced has always been uh, together. And I'm grateful that we're doing it together now. And I, I have a lot more faith in this next generation. The generation I think is that eighth fire, including that eighth gener, like that, that generation of um, black Canadians who are here because they're getting it. They're making space and they're not coming back with, well, you know, when, when we talk about the settler racism that exists, they're not coming back and saying, oh, well, you know, native people are racist to black people too. It exists on both sides. And I agree with that. But saying that as a way to counteract when talking about why it's not the same, yep. it's nothing more than gaslighting and continuing the settler colonial point of view. I've heard that so many times when I've tried to point that out. So I commend some of these. I commend a lot of the young, um, younger generation who is pushing for this and saying, we've talked enough. We've discussed enough. We have researched enough. It's time to do now. Um, how they go about doing that is a whole other question. I'm not going to oppose or um, support uh, anything other than I don't believe in full on, on violence when it comes to stuff, but I like the fact that they are actually showing that they're making space because that is a big thing that has been missing is making space because of indigenous people. And I see a good alliance that's forming there, but at the same time, some of our older generation, our, our group and above us needs to realize that you can't say, oh, we're all one. That's great, we are, but there's still things that benefit you as a settler, no matter the color you are, rather than an indigenous person. And sometimes that's forgotten about. And if we actually wanna talk about engaging indigenous people and getting past racism and settler colonialism, then it needs to be acknowledged. And you can't just come back with, well, you know, we're all treated bad through the, through the system. There's a problem with that. Yep, agreed, agreed, my friend. Thank you for being on my show today. Thank you so much for having me again. Awesome. Well, I'm going to end it for there and we're going to have to come back because that was so amazing. And I 
it's needed. It's a needed discourse about uh, John A. McDonald and the reason why that statue needs came down. And, you know, I know I have told you about some problems that I had to face here in Alberta in uh, the Liberal Party when it came to this, you know, a celebration of John A. McDonald. And I, I just feel like this is so healing for me, having someone to talk about it. So thank you.